Hello, I'm David Scott, the Editor-in-Chief of The Logic. And I'm Taylor Owen, Senior Fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation and a Professor of Public Policy at McGill. And this is Big Tech, a podcast that explores a world reliant on tech, those creating it, and those trying to govern it. A couple of months ago, Vice Media laid off more than 150 people. In the middle of the pandemic, this was hardly unusual. But what was unusual is that their CEO, Nancy Dubach, didn't just blame the coronavirus for their money troubles. She also blamed big tech. Over the past 20 years, the relationship between journalism and online platforms has been complicated. What started out as a promising partnership has been riddled with false promises, controversies, and heartbreaks as platforms absorbed the distribution, revenue models, and even some of the editorial functions of journalism organizations. Few people know this as well as Emily Bell. Emily helped launch the website for The Guardian in the early 2000s, and at the time, she was optimistic about how her industry might navigate the shift to digital journalism. But over the last decade, the advertising model that supported journalism for more than a century was blown up, partly by big tech. And Emily isn't quite so optimistic anymore. She's now the director of the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia University. And she spent a lot of time thinking about where things went wrong and how we might be able to rebuild the journalism industry. She was also my boss and collaborator when I worked at the Tau Center. And we're currently writing a book together. I think listening to this, you'll get the sense that there's a lot to be worried about when it comes to the state of journalism right now. But there's also a thread of optimism in there, too. We're sort of at a critical moment right now, and we have a chance to figure out and define what the role of journalism in society should be, and ultimately, who might pay for it. Here's Emily Bell. Emily Bell, welcome to Big Tech. Thank you very much indeed. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. I think... I think most people probably have a sense that journalism is not doing particularly well now, or at least traditional legacy journalism, but they may not know how or why we got here. So I'm hoping you can start by just giving us a lay of the land and maybe painting a picture of the state of journalism, both as a business and uh, as a trustworthy institution. Okay, so uh, easy questions first. So so there was this man called Gutenberg in Germany. So, so, the, so the story of technology and journalism, as you say, uh, David, is let's, t- let's try and take what went wrong um, for journalism over the last 20 years. So the internet arrives uh, in the late 90s, and everybody thought it was going to be great for journalism because they thought that you could just publish more things um, cheaply without printing a newspaper and just have a lot more readers um, looking at them. And therefore, the money you made out of it from advertising would go up as well. So that was the kind of first version of, of how journalistic organisations thought about, thought about the web, um, which was sort of true from about uh, 1996 to about 2003, when a, a kind of a new realisation started to dawn, which was that there were all of these new players emerging, uh, notably Google at the time, that could collect everything that news organizations were putting on their websites together and publish them 
in a completely separate way, which didn't really kind of give audiences the same relationship with uh, publishers, and audiences loved it. So Google News launches in 2002, and the figures go through the roof. Um, at this time, and I was running the Guardian's online um, businesses then, we still were not, we still thought that the way to save journalism was to really convert news organizations into digital news organizations. So let's be more like all of those other publishers on the open web. Let's try and make The Guardian more like a social platform. Let's have comments on it. Let's embed video. Let's do all of those things and say, you know, this is what this is what audiences want on the web. And to some extent, we were right, you know, kind of numbers for news consumption on the web carries on going up really from 2000 to 2010, pretty, pretty steadily. However, what went wrong was um, the business model, because we had a model whereby we still put ads on pages. So you open up your um, web browser, and you know, there's an annoying pop up and a banner ad, and then there's an news article. Uh, and this worked pretty well, you know, kind of this worked pretty well till about 2005, 2006. Then we had, you know, in 2007, you had companies like Twitter and uh, Facebook beginning to make an impact with new types of distribution for material, lots of creation now happening. So anybody could post anything. Um, and what we now, what we know really is that, that the advertising that had supported journalism really for sort of getting on for 200, 150 years started to not work so well as just a, a, an ad on a page. Um, and, and the targeting data, in other words, the things that websites like Google and, and Facebook knew about you became a much more efficient way to reach audiences. And that's, if you like, when the wheels really came off. If you're a smaller publisher, and particularly if you're a local publisher, your local businesses who would have paid you $30 for an ad were paying Google like $4 for an ad and finding that they were getting a better result from it. So really kind of from 2010, even though we had actually as, 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 as you know, lots of journalistic organizations have done a pretty good job of figuring out what digital audiences want. We had new things like BuzzFeed and Vox and all of those kinds of new news sites for, you know, young digitally savvy people arriving. Um, it sort of didn't matter because the advertising model just didn't work unless you were big enough. The big technology platforms, which are really advertising companies, have completely remade the economics for advertising. And if you are a publisher who wants relies on advertising, and that's, you know, a very significant number of news organizations, uh, then you are really going to have to find another way of making money. In fact, we're now looking at kind of there being no business models or no viable commercial business models. So I want to follow on that a bit because it gets to sort of the nature of the problem we're at now, which is if we are in a universe where a few global brands have made a transition to a mixed revenue model of scale of advertising combined with subscriptions and some smaller um, organizations can go fully on a subscription model. Um, if everything else goes away, which is close to where we are, frankly, right? Hmm. Um, how bad is that? And 
So what does that look like first? I mean, right. when everything else goes away, what are we losing? Right. And what are the costs of that? Right. Like how, how bad is that situation if that's where we're either at or close to getting to? So if everything goes away, it essentially means that we just see an acceleration of what we've already seen, which is like a halving of the number of reporters in newsrooms in the last 15 years. Um, we've seen a sort of di- just, just certain places that don't have news papers or, or, or news gathering anymore. And I think people say, well, Newspapers are going away because it's an old-fashioned medium, and that's true. But what, what they sort of tend to overlook or not know is that when you listen to your local radio station or you get cable news, a lot of the original reporting was done in those old-fashioned newspaper newsrooms. <laughs> so, so in a way that kind of the first thing you lose is, is on-the-ground reporting resources. Really important to understand that that feeds everything. I think the second thing that happens is that we go back to the 19th century <laughs> which is before advertising. So, you know, there is a theory, my friend Clay Shirky um, has kind of advanced this a couple of times, which I think is right, which is that, you know, that there was an anomaly in the 20th century where advertising supported an independent press. Before that, um, the press was party political. So one of the things that might happen, um, and this is a bit kind of, you know, looking into the crystal ball of the future, if you don't care about original reporting and you don't care about kind of fact checking and things like that, it's actually very cheap to automate local coverage. You can do it very, very easily. Um, and we're seeing a rise in companies, political lobbyists, uh, PACs, which are the advertising kind of the, 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 the political advertising committees in the States, um, using news media, things that look like local news to get their message across. Um, and that's across the political spectrum. So it could be that when we lose, we're not just losing local reporting resource, but the vacuum that's created by it is filled by all kinds of interests where it's very hard for the reader to actually understand why they're seeing these messages or how there's not the same kind of accountability or even legibility that you would have you know, if your local newspaper had a big building in the middle of town and everybody knew who owned it, it's one thing. If it's part of a sprawling network of a thousand sites put together by a conservative network that pumps out hundreds of thousands of different stories um, about things like crime figures and voter fraud, uh, those are, the, you know, you, you, you gain, if you like, so, so you lose resource, but you don't just lose resource. You also open, I think, the field for much more sort of challenging uh, elements when it comes to keeping a kind of holding a sort of a, an, a, an honest um, conversation. The other thing that happens, and there's plenty of research to back this up, is that your local government becomes more corrupt. <laughs> so where, where there is no local press, um, local officials tend to stay in office for longer. They tend to pay themselves more. Um, you know, we've seen this kind of over and again where there's a recession in that kind of reporting. There's a rise in corruption. If I were to push back in two areas, the, the one would be that some of the challenges that local newspapers have faced, I'm not convinced yet that these are revenue challenges, but more so that these are cost structure challenges. That if you said to me today, David, if you wanted to, in the city of Toronto, start a newsroom and from scratch, a digital newsroom, and I would give you 125 reporters which is effectively what the Toronto Star, for example, has. My answer to you would be, Emily, thank you very much. That's too many. 
I don't need that many. We could probably do some remarkable reporting with 25 or 50 reporters at most. And so in some ways, I think there's a, there's a disconnect between the operational structures that were there, and that doesn't even include the, the printing and distribution costs and everything else that went into right. that. Um, so that's the one. But then the other thing, and it's more of an existential thing that's been a question in my mind for a few months now, is there seems to be a baseline definition of what we mean by local news. And what I, what I found in, in you know, starting The Logic, uh, this publication in Canada, we cover local issues on particular niches, right? So we cover technology, and we, our reporting early on led the way on how Alphabet's Sidewalk Labs project in downtown Toronto was, was being covered. We went to City Hall. We, we looked at the lobbying records, and it, it was our reporting that ultimately led our competitors, the, the, the dailies, to pick up our reporting. And so with that anecdote behind me, I, I sometimes think that the definition of, of what we mean by local news needs to be broadened and that um, right. it's not necessarily a geographic thing. No, I would, I would actually agree with so, so I disagree with you on the first pushback and I'll agree with you on the second pushback, which is I think that we just have to have things that look structurally different. You know, we can all romanticize local papers um, and what they did, but we all know what the problems were. Huge amounts of cost attached to things that didn't really need doing by human beings. Lots of wasted kind of resources and um, often a kind of disconnect between the sort of newsrooms and the communities they covered. So this is why I'm very careful to say reporting rather than newsrooms or newspapers, because I think those are two different things. And we, we did a, the Tao Centre, we recently did an audit of what are local news outlets in New York City. And the first thing was exactly this point, that they are not, they don't look like local newspapers. And the second thing was that there can be tons and tons of coverage, but then there can be, so it's not a geographic desert, but it can be a, a sort of a reporting desert. So for instance, the courts in New York City now are largely un, unreported. In fact, there is a non-profit, this is an interesting, interesting kind of uh, question about whether you actually need news organizations. You know, there is a, there is an organization called Court Watch NYC which literally sends people to sit in courts to witness what is happening because there are no longer reporters there. Um, and it's, it's a really important function in the criminal justice system. If there is nobody in court to see who are the judges, who are the police officers, what's the dynamic? If you're just getting a report of the cases, you're really not doing a civic service to the people who are on that very important first run, the, 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 the ladder. Do you need news reporters to do that? Or is it done as well by a focused non-profit that is there to kind of witness those things? I mean, I think it's kind of crazy that we don't have that on the public record. Um, and the first thing that I've disagreed with you about, I can't quite remember. Oh, that the cost, I think the cost structure, that, that there is revenue. The more I look at this, the more I realize it's not just about what's, what are you getting out there on a daily basis that's being read by your audience and what money is coming through the door. It's about a civic function of being able to convene people. It's about building a kind of memory and public record and having a stable environment for that. And journalism is a team sport. You know, five people is a small team. Um, so, so that sort of resilience that you need to meet big corporate and big government challenges 
I believe does not exist in small teams in the same way it does in bigger teams. Now, we might be able to supplement those small teams with networks that help with investigative reporting challenges or legal challenges or, or whatever when we're refiguring this model. I think that's perfectly possible. But I don't I don't I wouldn't agree that you can do tons and tons with really tiny teams. I think you can do a lot over a short period of time, but I don't think you can build a resilient kind of an adequate facility. So if only there was a sector of society that had massive amounts of money made largely off the transition of digital advertising away from journalism and towards their business model, which was probably more effective at delivering that advertising. So even if we acknowledge that that wasn't their intention to undermine the journalism model, they have benefited tremendously from it. And they are now getting into the game of subsidizing journalism in a big way. And you have outlined and documented projects around the world where this is happening. And it's happening in Canada at scale and in a growing way where big tech is subsidizing journalism in, in many ways. What's wrong with that? <laughs> yes. Yeah, you asked for it now. You've got it now. You don't like it. That's a very uh, journalistic mm. cycle. Um, oh, absolutely. So, 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 <laughs> face, so, so let's talk about Facebook and Google here because Google and Facebook are the ones that have taken the advertising revenue, particularly on mobile. And they have both got uh, journalism, as you say, Taylor, journalism projects to help uh, support journalism. What I think is wrong with it is this, which is none of this is, all of this is actually kind of initiatives from within the companies themselves. The companies themselves are not what I would call intrinsically journalistic. And and people have sort of challenged me on that. So what, what do you mean by it? And I was saying, well, you know, they don't, journalism isn't what they do. Reporting is not what they do. And defending freedom of the press is not what they do as a core function. It's an ancillary function to advertising businesses and tech and, and, and software businesses. And often they have very important business relationships that are in direct conflict with supporting journalism. So the idea that you can, you know, sign NDAs with, uh, you know, government contractors and also be the backbone of the free press. I mean, there's a fundamental kind of conflict in that anyway. With the sort of lack of an alternative, these companies are now deciding how we reshape journalism, pretty much unilaterally and pretty much without any oversight. And is that really what we want to happen to the local press? And, and then just a really practical point, um, which is they have no, that, that there's no kind of guarantee that they're going to continue to give money to journalism. They might give a lot more of it, they may give a lot less of it, but nobody knows. It's all left to whim. So there's no real kind of long-term resilience or planning uh, possible. So so one of the things I'm worried about is that all of this has happened in in very small initiatives, but I, I feel as though these very small initiatives are actually adding up to a really big change where you actually have sort of complete dependency of particularly kind of, you know, smaller publishers on these relationships, both technical and financial, um, with a group of companies that are often actually in their backyard. I mean, David was mentioning Sidewalk Labs. Um, there's, you know, there's a, the, the Google is involved in Sidewalk Labs. If Google is, 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 is bankrolling the local press, what does that say about accountability? Um, it's a very difficult area, I think. And I think to some extent that the, 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 the Tech companies should have that taken out of their hands, have those decisions taken out of their hands. So I, um, 
I'm going to try to take another tack here, which is, Emily, I remember being in Austin uh, with you. We had a coffee after you had just attended an F8 developer conference. I think it was an F8 developer conference for Facebook where Jonah Peretti, uh, BuzzFeed CEO, was on stage talking about his new video partnership with Facebook. And I I think, to to paraphrase you and forgive me for putting words in your mouth, you said it it looked like he was being held hostage uh, at that presser. And you know, that's just, yes. that's the new players. But then at the very same time that was happening, we in some of the, the larger legacy newsrooms were having conversations with Google about first click free on search. And um, there was no real coordinated effort at the time on the publisher side to stand firm. And right. I, I share that to kind of, I guess, push back and say, we have to take, I, we being uh, those of us who were involved in in managing large publishing uh, organizations, we kind of let it happen on our watch. And so right. why is that Google and Facebook's fault? Well, um, uh, it's not their fault. This is not about apportioning blame. It's just about saying, yes, it happened on our watch. The question is not whose fault was it and are there two sides to this. The question is, what kind of society do we want? Uh, that's a huge question. But, uh, you know, think about... Think about India, and this is not a great example because obviously what's happened in India now is that they have an autocratic government and press regions are under under attack. But there was a moment when Facebook was uh, trying to get a scheme called Free Basics launched in India. And the campaign against Free Basics said this, which was really compelling and and actually the right thing, and and they won, um, though it didn't ultimately sort of perhaps land uh, the Indian press in in the right place. They said... If we are going to have a billion people or a hundred million people, if we're going to have a hundred million people coming online for the first time in the next year, are we really going to give that decision making about how that should happen to an American company like Facebook? And, and we've seen actually in other parts of the world where, you know, notably obviously in Myanmar, where literally the sort of free basics program ended up ended with genocide. You know, it was just like an un, uncomplete. Now, you know, kind of, I think that sort of allowing Facebook and Google the amount of um, invidious control and influence that they have across all sectors of the press at the moment is nobody's fault. You know, we let them in as publishers. They came with the money. They have some good people who are interested in fixing this problem. But it's not how we should be thinking about what makes for a healthy society and a free press, if, if that's what we want. If, if we want everything to be run by big technology companies, then actually this is a pretty good way of creating an exoskeleton for a completely different type of press, which actually doesn't have independence from, that has no more independence from large scale gatekeepers than we had in the last wave. So it could be that actually, you know, our hand-wringing is, is, is the wrong thing, and we're going to end up with, with something which is very like corporate media from the 1950s to the 19, you know, to, to the 2000s, um, and, but just on a larger scale with bigger companies with more control. I feel like these conversations always end up with a discussion of structure and design of technological systems and financial incentives, and that's where they, we always end up. Um, but it's very much the case here. And what we're talking about is imposing a, a model of speech that wants a norm and a set of policies for everybody on the planet. 
Mm-hmm. And we know that right. doesn't work. <laughs> we we, we right. saw what happened in right. Myanmar. We happened happened in the Philippines. We saw what happened in Brazil just recently. We right like we know what happens when American free speech norms combined with the financial incentives of platforms overlay on top of a media ecosystem of a country. Um, it right. works in some places, but in many many places it has serious downside risks. And it, in- including arguably America. I mean, right. I think that's I mean, the interesting that's, hap- that's happening now. <laughs> that's where I was going to go with this. I mean, I wonder if that model just doesn't work anywhere. If that this this sort of free right. speech absolutism combined with um, the financial incentives of an engagement based platform system just don't mix. And and if so, how do we break out of that? Well, I think it's like you know it, it, you, we have to think about speech as money. Uh, you know, likes and shares on Facebook are currency. Um, they are what give uh, the company value because they can track people's behavior. It spreads content. It gives them kind of targeting opportunities. And the, these are design features. These are not accidents. Um, and as you say, Taylor, you know, kind of actually sort of the thing has been to, to say from the American perspective, um, it's been a really, I think, interesting, it's been very interesting being a European who's been working here for the last 10 years because um, the version of the First Amendment, which is uh, constantly booted, boosted, which is, you know, the First Amendment is a very valuable kind of um, tenant of American society. Um, but it's not one that suits everybody because that's actually not protecting their freedoms at all. It's, you know, these, these are people who've been marginalized and silenced for a long time. And now there is a very uh, significant volume of them who are pushing back and saying, we don't actually like the way that this has been implemented at all. Um, it's causing discrimination, it's causing hatred, it's causing division, and you have got to fix it. So the focus has been on real kind of egregious human rights transgressions in uh, Myanmar and um, you know, Sri Lanka and uh, the Philippines and other places. But the same problems exist in the States, and now they're becoming manifest because, you know, the accountability of, of, of big tech, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's been allowed to plow this furrow pretty much unchecked um, because it's been highly financially successful. Journalism isn't all of this conversation. It's a part of it. Um, but one of the things you've been arguing for, and I think Ethan Zuckerman too, very effectively, is a reframing of how we view media and journalism in our public sphere and thinking of it as a civic good um, that isn't dictated solely by the market, but is something we decide as a society we value. um, And we then resource and figure out how to resource in a way that doesn't undermine its its function. Um, Can you talk a little bit so we sort of close here on um, what that might look like. What does it mean if we turn this on its head and think about media as a civic good um, yeah. and then act, fund it and um, support it accordingly? So, so, so that leads us to an immediately controversial and difficult place because it's like saying, is journalism like parks, which are nice to have kind of places? Or is it like the police, um, which is sort of controversial, uh, difficult, um, often at odds with the community that it serves. And actually, so, you know, journalism has this kind of watchdog function. I've argued that, it, that, that in some ways it's more like the police than it is like the parks, uh, in that not everybody necessarily welcomes it in quite the same way. And also that, you know, um, there is a vast difference between the damage done by bad journalism 
and the good done by good journalism. So, so, so what does it look like as a civic good? I think that you have to start off by saying, you know, do communities need or deserve human reporting and at what scale? So in other words, you know, this question of like, do we want somebody in the courts every day? Do we want somebody who can go to school board meetings and write about those? What do we think the four or five things which really matter for public accountability? How are they covered? And that might mean that these things are not necessarily the most read stories or the most you know, the most popular, um, but it is important that we find a, a, a mechanism through new types of public or civic media funding, maybe through local philanthropy. I mean, Americans always turn to philanthropy. Um, Europeans, Canadians tend to turn to government. But, but at a local level that decides what these bodies actually look like and, and how they operate uh, and, and how they're kept independent. So that's the other thing, which is, you know, how do you, is that a mixed model funding of proportion coming from local uh, funding, proportion coming from a central fund, um, and then a proportion coming from the commercial market, whether it's advertising or sponsorship or, or events or whatever it is. Um, and I think, you know, we, we're beginning to see, so this is, shouldn't all be kind of completely sort of doom and gloom. I think we are seeing models uh, which are exploring that um, pretty effectively. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing a lot more partnerships now between public media radio stations in, 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 in the US and local reporting outlets. We're seeing um, investigative uh, networks like ProPublica go from being national to locally based um, we're seeing, uh, you know, if you think about things that have actually been really successful in journalism in the last 10 years, one of those things is networks. So, you know, the, 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 the ICIJ, which is an investigative, international investigative, um, reporting network has broken some really big stories. Uh, you know, and, they, and those are kind of pretty resilient things, uh, and they need, but they need a different design approach, right? So I think it's a combination of having some central policy uh, and funding initiatives that create networks of support through technology, law, training, etc., um, combined with a system of local decision making about what kind of operation do we want to support here? You know, what, who, who in the community wants to run this? How does it fit together? How are these places represented? And it won't look uniform. I think we're all looking for a scaled solution. Um, and we have to allow for, as you said, really significant kind of regional and local variations because these things are cultural. You know, they, 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 it's a, it will, something that works in one place will not necessarily work in another. I, I, I should say I, I, I kind of step back for a few minutes here because I listening to you both talk, I can I can do this all day. Knowing you both for as long as I have, it's a real treat. Also, uh, for our, our listeners who, who may not know, Taylor and Emily wrote a book together. Uh, and so there's a lot we of... We should be careful uh, with the tense uh, there, uh, right? Yes, as I say, be careful. Yes, we, <laughs> we are writing. We are writing, but we are in the process of finalizing. Yeah, yeah. I would love... <laughs> Which you'll I would be love able to be at past tense, it's, but... It, uh. <laughs> Yes, it's 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 coming it's coming to a an Amazon list somewhere near you in twenty twenty seven. So watch out for it. <laughs> okay, well then we'll we'll have you. I will moderate the next time we have you on. Um, I, I, you know, just 
the one last question, which is, you know, because I, we've all known each other for so long, this conversation has evolved so much over the last 10 years. And it right. seemed like, uh, you know, some people may have been howling into a tornado and not getting any traction for quite a while. And then all of a sudden it just took off. Um, what's the one thing that, Emily, concerns you the most about the conversation and where it is today? And uh, just to end on a, on a happy note, what's the thing that you're most optimistic about? So the thing that I'm most concerned about is political will, that I think that the ideas are there, I think the energy is there, I think we know what the problem set looks like. I just think the political will and organisation to do something about it is still a little bit compromised by the lobbying efforts of the tech platforms. But what makes me hopeful is that um, we are at the bottom of the slippery slope. Almost anything we do now will make things better. Like we are kind of pretty close to the the bottom of where we could get to just in terms of worrying about what we read and where it comes from and what we see and who's behind it and not knowing about what the effects of those messages are. So I, and I feel just incredibly hopeful about the energy and focus of journalists actually now thinking, you know, we could actually kind of really sort of fix this. I see kind of, you know, activist groups um, having traction. I see regulators shifting their, you know, body language. Um, I see a great deal of danger. Um, but I also see, I think, the world waking up to what happens when journalism goes away. So I think that, you know, kind of we, we, we are at a point where there's an awful lot to build on, but we, we just need to make sure that we build. And, you know, one of the things we are going to need in this, I think, is, is as I say, a lot of political will. Well, Emily, thank you uh, again for taking the time. And uh, Taylor and Emily, I hope you can finish the manuscript at some point soon. And I look forward to uh, talking to you both again soon. <laughs> Thanks, David. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks so much. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation and The Logic and produced by Antica Productions. Make sure you subscribe to Big Tech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every other week.